1: Your primary care physician is your trusted go-to doctor for everything from annual checkups to ear and sinus infections. But sometimes you need a specialist. Fundamental functions, ear, nose, and throat issues. Tonight on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening. I'm Dr. Deborah Johnston, tonight's Prairie Doc. This season, we continue to bring our viewers trusted health information. Thank you for joining us again. Tonight, we're discussing ear, nose, and throat issues. And joining us in the studio here in Brookings are Dr. Micah Lickness from Midwest Ear, Nose, and Throat and Dr. Jared Mansell from Prairie Lakes Ear, Nose, Throat, and Facial Plastic Surgery. Welcome, gentlemen. I really appreciate you guys being here with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Dr. Lickness, tell us a little bit about you and what, you drew, what drew you to ENT. Sure.
2: So, uh, I, live in Yank- or I live in Sioux Falls, previously practiced in Yankton, South Dakota for 10 years. I decided I was gonna be a doctor when I was a kindergartner. Uh, My father was a family physician in Watertown, and so initially I was gonna do that. Uh, And then in med school, fell in love with surgery and the ear, nose and throat, head and neck anatomy, the ability to help patients with surgery right away when medicines failed. And uh, I love that you can see all ages of patients, male, female, you see the newborn baby having trouble breathing, and you see the 100 year old person having trouble hearing. And so every day is an adventure.
1: What more can we ask for there in life? Every day an adventure and feeling like you make a difference. It's a great feeling. Dr. Mansell, how about you?
3: So I was always interested in plastic surgery, and I knew the, ru- the traditional route to plastic surgery was general surgery with a fellowship. And in med school, I learned that you could do the facial plastics route through ear, nose, and throat. Um, <coughs> So I went that route, and as I went into ear, nose, and throat residency just completely fell in love with that all by itself with the additional training of the facial plastic surgery um, for the same reasons Micah mentioned is it's, it seems like a small specialized area, but it's, it's very vast, uh, breadth and depth, young to old, sick to healthy, um, surgery, clinic, and you just never get bored.
1: And I suspect we're gonna get a chance to demonstrate some of that breadth and depth and with the questions that our viewers are gonna send in. So before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about ear, nose, and throat issues. We look forward to answering your questions. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We'll work to answer as many of your questions as possible in the time we have available. sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we don't get to your question. So to encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for our newest Prairie Doc publication. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question and we've had some good questions to get started with already, so I'm very excited about that. Um, This one comes from Facebook. When an older adult has an enlarged asymmetrical, one-sided tonsil, is it usually recommended to have it removed? What is usually the outcome? This person's worried that it might be cancer. Is there some kind of test that can be done or something like a biopsy?
2: Yeah, so a biopsy could definitely be performed. The first thing I'd want to know is some more about the history with the patient. Um, how long has it been, been enlarged? Has it been that way for a decade, two decades, in, in which case it's not as much worrisome? Uh, are they having any associated pain with it, especially pain up into the ear on that same side is a worrisome uh, sign? Do they have any swollen lymph nodes in their neck on that side that's also worrisome that it could be a cancer and it's spread to the neck? Um, so then, you want to know: Have they had any like excessive smoking or drinking or chewing tobacco history, which are risk factors for a cancer? And then in the last 10 to 15 years HPV which is a virus that most adults have probably been exposed to now uh, they vaccinate younger children against is a common cause of head and neck cancer and so is there any potential exposure to HPV have they had it some other place on their body Uh, and so all those things kind of go into assessing the risk for that individual patient. In the office we usually look with a a flexible camera that goes in their nose and looks at the back of the throat so you can assess the whole extent of the back of the throat and then I usually palpate that tonsil as well to see if it feels firmer or more worrisome on that side and certainly removal of that tonsil as the biopsy if it looks normal on the surface would be warranted in that case.
1: So just because it looks normal on the surface where you can get to with a biopsy doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's all okay. Correct. Yeah. So you got to think about that too. The other thing that I would always want to know as the primary care person is, is it causing problems? Are they having trouble swallowing? Are they choking? Are they having apnea at night? That kind of thing. Absolutely. Anything else to add, Jared? So just
3: jumping into where you left off, so the concern is always when we mention asymm- asymmetrical tonsillar enlargement or hypertrophy, it is cancer, it's in adults typically, and <clears throat> I tell patients that there's no labs that we can get that can completely rule, rule those things out. Do um, you typically biopsy tonsils or remove them?
2: Usually remove them. Yeah. Yes. So Unless there's a, an obvious lesion on the correct. surface of it.
3: And I would say that the two most concerning cancers in an adult, especially with certain risk factors, would be squamous cell. And you can usually tell that it looks different, um, but the lymphomas you, you often couldn't. Um, the last part of their question is what is typically the result? And I would say in my experience, uh, fortunately I haven't been surprised a lot. Typically when you take the tonsils out, one or both, and there's two schools of thought on that, and lay them on the table, they're about the same size. One of them might have been more tucked in or endophytic, Mm -hmm. and one might be more protruding or exophytic. But overall, especially in kids too, when you do take them out and lay them by each other, they're not all that asymmetrically enlarged anymore, Um, and that's just your general random Person that comes in with tonsillary mm-hmm. symmetry, if it's something that showed up on a PET scan or something else, then. Um, yeah,
1: you're yeah, not getting yeah. a PET scan for no reason. No,
3: yeah, so. Right. And yeah.
1: then f-
2: for lymphoma, you want to know do they have fevers, night sweats, unexplained weight loss, are they completely fatigued, which can all be signs or symptoms of lymphoma? Do they have a family history of it, or did they have a prior lymphoma somewhere else?
3: So without a strong history of any of those things, and just pure tonsillar asymmetry in an adult, I don't get too excited. We'll we'll do as much of the workup as they want to do, but I don't always remove the tonsils anymore unless there's a good reason to do it, not just the asymmetry alone.
1: What's the downside to doing a tonsillectomy in an adult?
3: it's uh it's uncomfortable yeah.
1: Yeah. Pain <laughs> <and> <laughs> uh, for <laughs>
3: them not, not not so much for us yeah, but for not them. So yeah. much for us. Um, there's a risk of bleeding and it's higher in adults and that may necessitate another trip to the emergency room or back to surgery um, so you have to weigh all those things in um, it'd be nice if there was a lab that you could draw to prove and say you don't need surgery but there isn't one
1: yeah so it's kind of that clinical gestalt and Yeah, there's nothing wrong with a second opinion, but uh, if you get two ENT doctors telling you you should have that tonsil out, you probably should. Sure.
3: Yeah, and and even though we made it sound rough, people get through it, and I think the peace of mind of knowing it wasn't a cancer is worth its weight in gold when, when they're all healed up. Yeah. So
2: when somebody with low risk factors overall that has an asymmetry that really wants it out, it's certainly indicated to take out their tonsil. But if they'd rather watch it, then I would have them come up and and come back and follow up with me at interval uh, times to make sure that it hasn't changed at all or they haven't developed any of the other concerning findings Mm -hmm. that we talked about earlier.
1: Anything that changes quickly can be Mm -hmm. concerning (laughs) to us in medicine as a general rule. Uh, We have an email question that says, I was told I have nasal obstruction. Uh, Could you explain this more?
3: So I tell my patients, your nose is like a hallway. And, And I think the general public overlaps the nose with the sinuses. And that's the first thing I always try to differentiate is, is it purely just a problem with your hallway where you can't move good air through there? Or are you having facial headaches, thick, purulent drainage, loss of sense of smell, other things like that that may indicate more of a sinus issue? Once we've decided it's purely just a nasal obstruction issue, the first thing I want to see is the septum and the turbinates. Um, and the, outside turbinates of the, nose. <clears throat> um, the turbinates are? The turbinates are a bony little shelf covered in the same tissue that lines the inside of the nose, but the, the turbinates, especially the inferior turbinates, there's three on each side. Um, are chock full of these little blood vessels that can swell and shrink, and so we've all been laying in bed where one side of our nose is completely plugged up and and it may switch spontaneously or you rotate and then it feels like something opened on one side and the other side filled up. Those are the turbines. They're like airbags that that alternate. Um, But any sort of inflammation, allergies, those sort of things can cause them to be chronically enlarged. Um, sometimes just anatomically, the the bony part underneath is too close to the septum. Um, So those are the things we look at for obvious. You look at the external nose as well. I mean, if they've broken their nose and it's shifted two and a half centimeters to the left, the inside of that side (laughs) isn't gonna be very good either. Um, If you don't see any of those obvious sources, it's always a good idea to take a camera and go in and look. Um, Polyps, uh, the middle turbinates can have air pockets within the bone that just make them overly enlarged for no reason. Um, That's called a concha so they can be kind of like another set of turbinates further back that you may not see as well. Um, Polyps, masses, things like that um, that we'd want to make sure.
1: Something's something's keeping you from breathing through your right. nose. Let's figure out why. Yeah. Something so to add
3: there. The Jared kind of went through all
2: the anatomical things, and then in the far back are the adenoids. And so if you have big adenoids, that can block the nose posteriorly. And the question is, you know, did the patient was told they had nasal obstruction, but are they bothered by it at all? Um, I'll see a lot of patients that come in. You know, they're in their 70s or 80s, and they broke their nose when they were 15, and they're very obstructed inside their nose but they've lived with it for 65 years. And does anything need to be done about it? No, not if they don't want something done. And then you have patients that come in that are extremely bothered by it. Or their main complaint is snoring and you look in their nose and they're very obstructed and it's really a nasal problem, not the, the, the snoring. And so you need to address that to get better. Uh, and so a lot of times you can, you start off with like saline irrigations. If they don't have a major anatomical obstruction, cartilage or bone that's not going to change, you try to decrease the inflammation inside of the nose. So rinsing your nose with saline by, you know, limiting allergen exposure, nasal sprays like Flonase or antihistamine sprays are kind of the mainstay of the first round of treatment.
1: And then there's always surgery if, there uh, is always if that surgery. isn't helpful enough. Um, we have a question about a friend who suddenly lost their hearing and they're otherwise healthy. What kinds of things could cause that? Michael, have you start. Yeah,
2: so by far the most common cause of a sudden sensory neural hearing loss uh, is a viral infection. But the first thing we want to assess is, do they have something blocking the sound from getting to the inner ear? So is it just wax? or do they have fluid behind their eardrum and they have an ear infection that needs addressed? Uh, but really, if you've suddenly lost hearing, it's, a, it's an emergency uh, because the faster you get on treatment, the, f- the greater likelihood that your hearing will come back. So if you've lost your hearing, I would encourage you to get a hearing test as soon as possible. And then the two medical treatments that have been proven to reverse a sudden hearing loss are steroid pills either taken orally or you can inject steroid behind the eardrum. Uh, to a certain point, uh, hyperbaric oxygen is, is successful as well. Um, And so the faster you get diagnosed with it and the faster you get on treatment, the greater the likelihood is that you'll recover. But, so viral infection is the most common. You get a cold and it spreads to the inner ear and you drop your hearing. But there's other causes too, whether that's vascular, uh, metabolic, like someone with poorly controlled diabetes, uh, vascular, somebody that's had a stroke or or is prone to blood clots, you can clot off a little vessel in the inner ear. Um, Toxins like chemotherapy is very, certain chemotherapy drugs are ototoxic and they can damage the inner ear and drop your hearing. And then- uh, antibiotics. antibiotics, certain antibiotics. Sure, certain ones, yes. Uh, And then tumors, so there's a tumor called an acoustic neuroma, which is a benign tumor that grows off the balance nerve where it runs from the inner ear with the hearing nerve to the brain. And that benign tumor can push on the hearing nerve and cause you to lose hearing suddenly if it's enlarged. And so an MRI scan of the brain in the internal auditory canal would diagnose that
1: anything to add there Jared?
3: Um, yeah so the treatment time frame is crucial on these and I anytime I have students or nurse practitioners or PAs or anybody rotating with me it's I, I try to encourage them if you don't see an obvious cause of obstruction wax or fluid back there get the hearing test or get them in with us because most of the data would suggest that the earlier we start treatment the better um, I tell my patients it's it's always best to get you started within the first month preferably within the first two weeks and <clears throat> if we don't see them for two months afterwards it, it's really tough to, to, to justify using any of those high dose oral steroids or intratympanic steroid injections um, it just hasn't been shown to be that beneficial that far out so like Micah said it's an otologic emergency if, if somebody's looking at an ear somebody's saying they can't hear and you don't see an obvious cause get the hearing test or get them in with an ENT rather than just assume it might be fluid back there. If it is, the hearing test would show it, or we'll see it, or at least, and you can't see through every eardrum. I'll be the first to admit that. Um, (laughs) But we have other, we have microscopes, we have tympanometers, we have a lot of other tools to help us with that. If we we just can't figure out, we can make a small incision and and find out, and and if there's no fluid, inject through that as well.
2: Perfect. And various viruses can cause it when it's when it's likely viral related. I'm not sure if you saw an uptick in it this this past couple of months, but uh, in the first month of this year, in January, at Midwest in Sioux Falls, I saw eight patients with a sudden hearing
3: loss. I have six yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, and what's your um, your algorithm, your protocol for treatments?
2: Yeah, so I will discuss like oral steroids and intratympanic injections with them right away. As long as they don't have a contraindication to oral steroids, I usually start them on that. And then I see them the next week with a hearing test again to see if they've responded to it. And if they have, we can just continue that uh, burst and taper down of the prednisone. If they haven't responded, then I offer them the intratympanic injection right away because the faster uh, that they get uh, steroid treatment, the greater the likelihood of of recovering
1: we've had a lot of questions coming in and uh, some of the questions here are about vertigo and we actually have a little film clip here for people about one cause of vertigo people who have benign positional vertigo the feeling of spinning can make life hard to live seeing a physical therapist is one way to combat these sensations Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke to a physical therapist about this type of vertigo and how they work with patients to help alleviate symptoms.
4: Vertigo is a sensation that feels like the room is spinning, and Sanford Health physical therapist, Janie Watson, helps her patients get through it. For most of our patients, they might
5: just wake up with sudden vertigo, so they roll and get out of bed in the morning and then feel like the room is spinning and whirling around them um, to the point where sometimes
4: they can't walk or stand or they're vomiting. Vertigo can be caused by ear infections or head injuries. And Watson sees a wide range of ages from six year olds to 100 year olds. She says women are more susceptible to experience vertigo along with other factors.
5: It's also more common for females to get them. People who have diabetes, um, migraines, um, vitamin D deficiency all increase that possibility.
4: Watson says the most common type of vertigo is BPPV, or benign proximal positional vertigo. That's when the crystals in our ears that help us balance are displaced, causing that feeling of spinning. The inner part of your
5: ear controls your balance. So when they go out of place, you move your head a certain way, and then those crystals or those calcium deposits aren't in the correct
4: position. To fix BPPV, Watson has her patients lay on a table and she moves their head while looking in their eyes. She says when someone's crystals are out of place, that causes the patient's eyes to shake. And I always tell patients, I know
5: this sounds really, really weird, Um, but we just kind of hold your head through a certain set of movements. And by holding your head through these movements, it allows those little crystals to float down that part of your ear and dump back to where it's supposed to so it's not really an exercise. We're just trying to mechanically put
4: those little crystals back in place. Watson says as people age, it's more likely for the crystals to displace more easily. Patients usually only need one or two visits to realign those crystals if they're out of place. But for serious head injuries, they could take up to five to six visits.
5: Those people might have those crystals out of place in right and left ear and in multiple parts of their ear. That increases the possibility that it might be longer.
4: Watson brings up that if people don't get therapy to get their crystals realigned, some will have their crystals fix themselves and go back to normal. For others, their crystals could never realign.
5: I've seen patients that have had those crystals out of place for 20 or 30 years and they've had that vertigo, and it's not till we specifically bring them through those movements to put them back in place to where they feel better. Um, So if you come to therapy with that, you'd feel better sooner.
1: So Jared, um, that lovely little clip was a lot about benign positional vertigo, but can you tell us briefly, is that the only kind of vertigo that there is?
3: It is not. There's plenty of other kinds. Um, I always break down dizziness into disequilibrium and vertigo. And to me, vertigo is a false perception of motion and disequilibrium is everything else. Lightheadedness, presyncope, uh, low blood sugar, those sort of things, orthostatic hypotension. So if we're talking about vertigo, we're already implying that somebody's got some false perception of motion. So Um,
1: spinning, spinning, falling, rolling. rolling.
3: Exactly. And um, BPPV is by far the most common inner ear cause of uh, vertigo. And it involves uh, those calcium crystals rolling around in the in the semicircular canals and triggering nerves and telling your brain your head's moving when it's not. I'd say that's about seventy-five percent. Um, I would say the next most common cause would be a viral infection again, like we were talking about with a sudden loss. It can still cause inflammation of those balanced nerves, and um, there's even without
1: an effect on the hearing.
3: With or without an yeah. effect on the hearing, um, the difference between that and benign positional vertigo is, uh, benign positional vertigo typically triggers when they move their head, roll over in bed. If they hold perfectly still, that spinning is gonna stop within minutes where a viral infection is gonna be just like a cold, it's gonna last for days or a week, um, and it's miserable for those, it's all miserable for these (laughs) patients, but um, lasting much longer than minutes, um, I'd say that's probably the next most common cause, and then we can talk about Meniere's, which is, a fluid pressure issue in the inner ear, um, often related to salt intake or your inability to excrete salt, and that can cause vertigo, ear um, fullness or a, a plug sensation in the ear, along with fluctuating hearing loss and fluctuating tinnitus. And, and that's those are the, probably the three most common inner ear causes of mm-hmm. vertigo that we see. Um, you can throw in vascular problems, all the same things we talked about with sudden loss. Basically, somebody could have a small stroke, um, small enough where it won't even show up on an MRI. Um, and those those are probably the top four, I would say, for, for what we see.
1: And they're certainly miserable patients. Vertigo yeah. is miserable. Yeah. Anything to add there?
3: So you can
2: differentiate the different types of true otolotic Otologic vertigo by the the duration of their of their symptoms. So BPPV is usually like seconds, less than a minute of the room spinning sensation. You can still feel off for you know longer hours, uh, but the true vertigo is very short lived. Uh, Meniere's is usually like hours, uh, less than four hours, and it usually occurs in attacks, where you, especially initially on, if you have Meniere's, where you'd get vertigo, you have fullness in the ear, it feels plugged. Uh, You lose hearing, and if you test it during that time, initially it's at the deeper bass sounds, and then it may recover completely once the attack goes away, and then the room-spinning vertigo and loud machine-like roaring tinnitus is kinda how they describe it. And then vestibular neuronitis, which is the viral infection attacking just the balance nerve, or labyrinthitis if it involves the hearing nerve as well, is usually more prolonged. It could last days to weeks uh, before it finally resolves.
1: And people are miserable, (laughs) so. um, Here we have a caller who wants to know if they should be concerned if they've recently developed nodes in their neck, but they don't have weight loss is that still potentially concerning Micah
2: so uh, lymph nodes can swell up in the neck for many things and so I would definitely recommend that if they didn't notice it before that they go get checked out but lymph node enlargement in itself isn't necessarily cause for concern it can be a variety of things infectious or inflammatory uh... that aren't something to worry about as much as like having a cancer or a lymphoma. Oftentimes too, if they're right under the jaw, uh, the submandibular glands, which are saliva glands about the size of a large jawbreaker that empty right up in front of the mouth under the tongue, and people will mistake those for a lymph node in their neck. And really it's a normal salivary gland that they're aware of now.
1: feeling, yeah. Now, I do have to say if you feel a lymph node here, I'm worried about that, we need to get that checked out. So yes. don't, don't sit on that one.
2: Absolutely, a supraclavicular lymph node above your collarbone is a cause for concern and should be evaluated, because um, it can cause, or be uh, a symptom of a cancer in either in the breast or in the abdomen that's actually spread there.
1: Yeah, so it's a, something to be checked out. We have a caller who says their nose is always dry in the winter, even when they use a humidifier at night. What else can they do, Jared?
3: I, I always start with the saline rinses. Uh, you mentioned a nati Pot earlier. Um, Neal Med is another one that I really like. It's a high volume but low pressure rinse for the nose. And if that's not enough, um, ointment, Vaseline, triple antibiotic, something over the counter, not a strong antibiotic, but just a Chocolate chip-sized amount inside the nose before bedtime can can help moisturize. You know, if if your skin was dry, you're not necessarily going to sit next to a humidifier. You're going to put lotion on. Mm -hmm. So that's my approach to the nose as well.
1: Air A Y R is another good name. The saline gel is another good option. This call or email. A lot of sinus headaches when the weather changes, even when they take Claritin. Anything else? Yeah. Like,
2: so uh, sinus headaches or, or rhinogenic headaches can be um, treated a variety of ways. So. The first thing I do is try to limit what's uh, causing inflammation in the nose. So saline irrigations are always recommended. It helps with humidification and moisturization, also washes out allergens or pollens, the drainage, bacteria, viruses, so recommend that. Uh, Nasal sprays, there's two types that I would recommend in this case. Uh, So for chronic use, so one is like a steroid spray, like Flonase or Nasonex. Uh, The other is azelastine, which is like an antihistamine spray and you can use both of them. Uh, Decongestants, like decongestant sprays like Afrin work really well to acutely kind of resolve those symptoms of pain and pressure, but if you're using them every day, you can end up getting hooked on them and then end up getting rebound congestion and make your situation worse. Uh, And then decongestants like a Mucinex or a Sudafed are certainly uh, things you can use. But if it's a chronic issue that's been going on for at least 12 weeks, uh, you should really have it evaluated by an ENT and we'll look in uh, with a nasal endoscope up your nose, look at the sinus drainage area because you may have a blockage that needs addressed either longer medications or possibly surgically.
1: Or higher doses of the same medications or yeah. something like that. So um, we have a caller who wants to know if it's concerning that they have uh, trouble with coughing up phlegm and a constant feeling of junk in their throat. What are your thoughts on that,
3: Jared? But I mean, it's not normal, right? So is it concerning? Depends on the history and how long it's been going on. I would say the most common cause I see for that lump sensation in the throat, we call that a globus sensation. The number one cause that I see in my office is related to reflux, acid reflux. And from the stomach. A so lot feel of people will say they don't have any sort of heartburn symptoms, and, and we as otolaryngologists differentiate GERD from laryngeal pharyngeal reflux, or LPR, Um, We call that the silent reflux, you don't have to have heartburn to have it. It takes much less acid or weaker acid to get up into that area and it can still cause problems where it might not be enough to cause the heartburn symptoms. Um, Other pathologies could still be possible, I mean if they're having trouble swallowing and things like that it could be a large thyroid, a stricture in their esophagus, uh, a tumor but by, by far the majority of patients that make their own appointments for that. Coughing up phlegm and globus sensation, it's reflux.
1: How about vasomotor rhinitis? Do you ever see?
3: We do. With that? Um, yeah.
1: Tell, yeah. tell our viewers what vasomotor so, vasomotor rhinitis, rhinitis
2: is. So rhinitis is a, like clear, watery drainage. It can be anteriorly or it can be post-nasally as well, where it's not caused by an allergen, it's not caused by an infection, it's just kind of overactivity of the nerves that tell our nose to secrete mucus Um, it's usually thin and watery much more common in the older population Um, actually probably 90% to 100% would have it Um, it can be treated with uh, a spray there's an anticholinergic spray that works really well there's some different medications that they can take daily as well there's also a procedure that's been around for about the last five six years where you can uh, either use cryotherapy or radiofrequency to treat the nerve, uh, the posterior nasal nerve on the back lateral wall of the nose that tells your nose to get congested and drain. And you can uh, essentially damage that nerve and so it's less active. Uh, It can be done in the office or it can be done asleep. It's pretty easy to do actually and people get good results from it.
1: I told you guys I'd learned something today. So that's fabulous. Uh, We have some questions here today about tinnitus and before we talk about that, If you have tinnitus, the constant ringing in the ears can be more than annoying. It can be a frustrating condition that makes it hard to focus. Prairie Doc Sam Schauer spoke with an ENT doctor about this condition and ways to help alleviate the symptoms.
6: Well, tinnitus is an abnormal perception of sound. People hear something that, you know, isn't there.
4: Dr. Kenneth Scott from Midwest ENT and Allergy in Sioux Falls helps patients deal with tinnitus. The most common symptom is constant ringing in the ears.
6: It's sort of like a sound like crickets or a constant sort of ringing sound they'll sometimes describe it or a whooshing. Um, every once in a while you're hearing yourself, you're hearing the blood vessels in, inside your neck or your head. So you, that can be a slightly different sound, but the usual kind is the ringing.
4: Dr. Scott says 90% of people will get tinnitus in their lifetime and it could be a side effect of certain medications rather than a cause. Most people will get tinnitus when experiencing hearing loss.
6: Most commonly it's your brain wishing you could hear better and the bottom part of the brain kicking in filler sound or filling electrical signal that the the brain then perceives as a, a background ringing.
4: He says tinnitus mainly affects people over 50. However, people exposed to loud noises throughout their life, like farmers, are more
6: at risk than others. So if they're farmers, even when you were doing your farming when you were more of a kid, sort of taking it all for granted, you know, in terms of the loud sounds, uh, you can start getting troubles earlier.
4: When checking for tinnitus, Dr. Scott uses an audiogram, which measures how well you can hear quiet sounds.
6: It is beeps, okay, different pitch beeps, so they can tell what pitches you're having trouble hearing, and they also measure how clear your hearing is. So they'll read you words and they'll, they'll try to see if you can understand the words.
4: Dr. Scott says hearing aids can help soothe tinnitus because they replace what the brain wishes to hear and says newer hearing aids help fix it.
6: There's some technology, new technology within hearing aids where they can provide a little bit of a sort of a masking sound at the level at the area of the the in it can kind of soothe, almost like a baby being soothed by a, you know, having a noise generator in their crib when they're trying to sleep.
4: Protecting your hearing is important, and Doctor Scott Ends was saying wearing ear protection in any loud environments will help preserve your hearing and help protect against tinnitus.
6: Sometimes people will say use both, you know, put in the the squishy earplugs and then wear muffs as well, but. Uh, something's better than nothing and so I personally just wear the squishy little plugs.
1: information about tinnitus I think it's such a frustrating problem that we all see and we have lots of questions so we're gonna go into lightning round and try to get to as many of them as we can and tinnitus is a good good introduction Uh, this uh, individual says I'm getting hearing aids how do you know which is best for you
3: Jared. We don't sell hearing aids in our clinics. So okay. I would defer to Dr.
2: Lickness. Yeah. So I mean, I would sit down with an audiologist. And so at Midwest ENT in Sioux Falls, they we have hearing aid evaluations, they're free for the patient. It's where they sit down and they go over here's the different you know brands and models that we have. What are your activity levels and expectations with it? Um, you know, if somebody with difficult hand dexterity changing the batteries on them might be difficult. So there's ones that just have a docking station. And then there's different features on all of them, just like buying a car. There's, you know, you can Bluetooth to hook up to everything. and, And so really gauging what the individual person wants and expects and needs. And so I think an audiologist would be able to sit down with them and go over what their expectations are and their needs and really answer that question and deliver what they need.
1: And are audiologists, are all hearing aid people audiologists?
3: They're not, I think at least in Michigan there were licensed hearing aid technicians and then um, doctors of audiology.
1: So an audiologist, somebody with that additional training can really help fine-tune what, what's going to get you what you want so um we have a caller asking how often do you see bifid uvula and is it more common for males first off what is a bifid uvula
3: so the uvula is the little hanging down thing <laughs> in the back of the soft palate
1: that's the technical name that the hanging down yeah, thing yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah
3: um so when it's bifid it means it's split and i guess i haven't seen uh, a gender bias in that um but is it, did they ask if it was a cause of concern or?
1: I think they just asked if it's more common in males. Yeah. But what, what happens, why um, is it there?
3: It can be, it's just embryologically when the when the palatal shelves come in, in from the right and the left and form, um, it can be a sign of a submucous cleft, which we all know what cleft lip and cleft palate are, but if there's a dehiscence of bone or musculature back there, but the, the overlying skin, the mucosa still connects, um, you, you wouldn't see it. So it can be a submucous cleft an occult submucus submucous cleft. That can be an indicator that they m- might have issues with swallowing or eustachian tube problems.
1: So it is something that's developmental, and if this is an older individual and they've just noticed it, it's probably yeah. not yeah. gonna be an issue for them going
3: forward. And not all submucous clefts have all those issues. Issues, either. or but any of those it, issues. It, at least when we're doing adenoid surgery, if we notice the uvula, and we should be palpating the, the cleft for or the, the palate for a submucous cleft, if you thought there was a submucous cleft or there is one, you definitely don't want to be aggressive on the adenoids because the palate wouldn't maybe close against the back wall and they can develop velopharyngeal insufficiency where whatever they're eating and drinking come through their nose
1: or their speech is indistinct. Yeah,
3: when
2: the the palate is forming, it starts from anterior and then goes to posterior. And so the uvula is the last little part to kind of develop or fuse. And there's the muscular uvula, which if it doesn't fuse, you end up with a bifid uvula. And so uh, really it's nothing to worry about unless they're having like a speech or swallowing issue. I'm not sure I'm male-female.
1: Male-female. I don't think election. there's a difference yeah. in cleft, not so I, I wouldn't learned. think there'd right. be in that. So, uh, we asked a caller from Pierre wanting to know about the efficacy of tubes in her ears for reducing the fluid buildup behind her eardrum. Jared.
3: I mean, as long as the tubes are in an open, uh, efficacy efficacy's high. It's, uh, it basically bypasses the Eustachian tube problem. It's a temporary fix, but as long as that tube is in an open, Um, you really can't develop the negative pressures that lead to that fluid buildup in the first place. Can you still get an ear infection? Yeah, but it significantly reduces that effusion buildup in people that will chronically get that from a chronic eustachian tube issue.
1: dysfunction. And there are some tubes that last a lot longer than others. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, we have a caller, I don't know the answer to this one, um, who has had mono several times and has heard that the virus makes her more susceptible to nasopharyngeal cancer. Is that true, and if so, why?
2: So, Epstein-Barr virus uh, has been found to have a high predilection uh, of being present in nasopharyngeal carcinomas. Um, Nasopharyngeal carcinomas themselves are extremely rare, unless you're from a certain area of China. (laughs) Uh, It's more common in certain ethnicities, uh, much more common in in African-American ethnicities and Hispanics than in Caucasians. I think the viral effect can damage cells, just like similar to HPV and head and neck cancer, and so that's kind of the the process of it. Um, and so I don't know the exact mechanism if they want that, but um, I, I would say that having recurrent mono would not necessarily put you at much higher risk than somebody that had mono once, uh, but definitely if they started to notice uh, nasal obstruction in their posterior pharynx where the adenoid pad is, uh, they'd wanna get it evaluated. Or if they're having unexplained nosebleeds where they didn't have trauma and it wasn't dry, Nasopharyngeal carcinoma when you find it oftentimes has spread to a lymph node in the neck and so if they felt a lymph node especially in the posterior part of their neck uh, don't ignore it and they should get evaluated
1: and those lymph nodes should be evaluated in anyone in the back of the neck we have a caller saying their child is getting a cochlear implant could you talk a little bit about that
3: I don't do cochlear implants <laughs> but um, if you can, I don't I can talk about I, it. But.
1: I don't. Is, does anyone in your group do cochlear yeah, so implants? Yes, there's several
3: in my group. Okay.
2: Yeah. Yep. Doctor Scott and Doctor Bennett. I know Doctor Scott mm-hmm. did. Yeah. Yes. So.
1: Excellent, so what is a cochlear implant for our other viewers?
2: Yeah, so a cochlear implant is an implant that's placed into the inner ear, the cochlea, and it follows the coils around, and it essentially allows them to, to generate hearing where their own ear, their natural ear, is, is the hearing, the hair cells in the inner ear are damaged and they can't. And so it's implanted uh, through a, uh, an incision behind the ear. There's a little implant that sits there, and then they still have a device apparatus on the outside Outside of their ear um, and so initially at surgery it's implanted and then there's an activation later on uh, where they can hear.
1: It's an incredible technique it, that allows are, a lot of people to hear so um, we have a caller asking if we have heard of jungle ear which is an infection obtained during the Vietnam War and are there any new treatments that might be beneficial? I've never heard of jungle ear. So
2: I've seen a few patients who are Vietnam vets um, which I'm, I'm supposing this is what they're talking about. Um, some okay. had exposure to Agent Orange, uh, but the outer ear, it was almost like a, a florid dermatitis, red, scaly, swollen, deformed, um, and other than treating dermatitis of the skin like we normally would, um, I am not aware of a specific treatment for jungle ear.
3: ear. All right. Have you heard the term before? I had not, I no. Only. Okay.
1: Um, We have a question from Facebook. This individual had COVID last summer and now they've had several non-COVID respiratory infections this past fall. Are we seeing this as something happening to people after getting COVID being more susceptible to respiratory infections? What's your impression, Jared?
3: I guess the question, are they talking in their lungs or in their upper airway? Um, I would say anything that causes congestion of the sinus lining, um, especially if it's there long enough, can lead to the buildup of bacteria and things not be able to clear out of there. So that makes sense to me. Whether there's underlying epithelial damage or anything from from a bad infection, that makes sense as well too.
1: We're still learning a lot about yeah. COVID, I think.
3: I would say it's just dependent on the severity of the
2: infection. So anytime somebody gets a really severe upper respiratory infection, there's a period of weeks or a month or two before it, the, the lining normalizes. And so if they had a really severe case of COVID, it could have been, you know, parainfluenza or croup or influenza, any severe infection would then make them a little bit more susceptible to a worse infection that they, if they got it in the next you know, few weeks to a month or two.
1: One last question I think we have time for here, and this individual, I saved this one for last, recurrent sinus infections, how can they prevent them?
3: So, good nasal hygiene is always the starting point, and...
1: It's okay to use those nasal saline sprays every day. That is. was another it is. question. It is. Yes.
3: I, I think there's, there's two schools of thought on it, and I'm of the school of thought that it's okay to continue doing it. Um, again, if it's allergy-based, one of the allergy sprays or topical medicines, if, if we're not sure it's inflammatory, the steroid sprays work well, um, we have options to do antibiotic rinses. We have options to do anti- or steroid rinses, where we're actually getting a higher concentration than just the steroid spray. Um, but if it's if it's a continual pattern. I kind of want to know if it's an anatomical issue. We often get a CAT scan, and if there's an obvious anatomical issue there, it makes sense to fix that. Sooner than later, I think, again, the more recurrent infections you have, there's remodeling and things, and if something becomes extremely chronic, it's harder to fix. Harder
1: to fix. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think there,
2: uh, with recurrent infections, you need to start looking at what are other potential causes that are predisposing them to those infections so do they have allergies and so I would recommend getting allergy testing uh, for weeds trees grasses molds animals and then any uh, particular foods do they have an immune system issue there's a lot of people with just a mild immune deficiency of like one antibody or something else that then predisposes them to infection that otherwise they're walking around you wouldn't even know anything different um, so those are the the Things that I would kind of work up, uh, like Dr. Mansell said, getting a CAT scan. If you've had four infections in the past year, it's indicated to do surgery. Uh, depending upon uh, the extent of your sinusitis, would kind of determine what surgery you needed. Uh, but there's a variety of different procedures that can be done to, uh, to approach that and recurrent acute sinusitis.
3: One other thing I'd add to that is, is you might want to consider looking at their. Uh, immune system as well. If they're deficient in certain immunoglobulins, it would predispose them to uh, recurrent sinus Sinus infections too. All
1: right. Um, Ten seconds, last thoughts.
2: Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much for
3: having us out. I wish (laughs) we had time to answer all the questions. They're they're very good questions. They're
1: great questions, so never be afraid to ask your questions, folks, uh, either to your primary doctor or your specialists. The winner of our prize tonight is Howard. Thank you, Howard, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. And we'll be back after this.
0: Looking for a source of trusted health information? Grab a copy of your local newspaper or read online the newest Prairie Doc Perspective, a weekly health and medical column. Head to prairiedoc.org to access all archive
1: columns today. I confess that occasionally even doctors get squeamish. Or perhaps more honestly, this doctor does. My personal list has gotten pretty short, but one of the things that still make me squirm is something I nevertheless frequently recommend to my patients. So what is this mysterious and rather ominous medical recommendation? Nasal saline irrigation. The practice of rinsing the nose out with liquid probably originated centuries ago in India and it remains part of spiritual ritual as well as traditional medicine around the world. However, it isn't something I learned about in medical school. Western medical research into it began in earnest perhaps 25 to 30 years ago. How does this rather torturous sounding practice help? It physically removes germs, allergens, and irritant particles. It loosens thick mucus and it helps the cilia, the tiny hairs lining our airways to clean things out. Although the practice is generally safe for almost everyone, there is one very important caveat. Your equipment must be clean and the solution used prepared with sterile or distilled water to prevent a very rare but highly deadly infection. When I tell someone that I think they should flush a cup or so of salt water into one nostril and out the other, and then do it again from the other side, they usually react with dismay. I freely admit that the idea sounds pretty awful and that it makes my toes curl every time I suggest it. And then I tell them a story. I first recommended this for a patient who was all of seven years old. Her horrible allergies and chronic sinus problems triggered frequent asthma attacks. She had a collection of inhalers and pills from her allergist, her dad had torn up the carpet, and the family dog was bathed twice a week and still banished to the backyard. Parents, child, and doctor were all a little desperate When I rather hesitantly suggested nasal saline irrigation, her mom was willing to try it. A month later, my little patient came dancing down the hallway, announcing with glee, Dr. Deb, Dr. Deb, I love my neti pot. The simple act of regularly rinsing the allergens and irritants out of her nose had improved her symptoms so much that she could play outside with her dog. Now I tell my reluctant patients that if a literal child can do it, we can borrow some of her courage and try it too. If you suffer from chronic sinus problems, or even just the next time a cold or allergies, have you stuffed up and miserable? Ask your doctor if you should grit your teeth and give it a try. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Lickness and Dr. Mansell, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about ENT issues. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live most Wednesday mornings at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings and online. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thank you for joining us for another episode of health information based on science, built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people.
0: We continue to provide trusted health information with one of our viewers' favorite shows. Ask anything next time on Call with the Prairie Doc.
7: I'm Carter Holm, and uh, I have been a nurse for about eight and a half years, worked for the first half of my career in a nursing home, uh, but now I'm at a Vera McKinnon inpatient rehab. My dad worked with On Call at the Prairie Doc and started the Healing Words Foundation. And uh, after he passed, we decided as a family that we would take turns on the board to represent uh, what we feel is our dad's best wishes. So I feel like I've been involved with it my whole life, but uh, specifically the last two years working on the board. It's an incredible resource for our community. and. Um, with the, the hard work of the volunteers, we're providing a resource to the community of South Dakota that is pretty rare to help prevent people from needing to go to the hospital, you know, to prevent the spread of misinformation. You know, providing that science-based approach uh, really was a passion of my dad's and something that we're really, we're really honored to continue. It gives people that first step because it's a way that we can talk to our physician without having to make an appointment or having to wait or having to frankly spend any money. You know, a free service to help provide information, helping prevent potential hospital stays or more serious health issues. My dad was a physician, my mom uh, a nurse practitioner. When I graduated from high school, the one thing I knew was I did not want to go into medicine. (laughs) And then as I grew and matured, the idea of having a stable career that allowed me to help people became sort of my driving focus. And uh, On Call with the Prairie Doc started so long ago with the idea of helping people. It has inspired me in that you know I'm a professional nurse, but I'm a helper first and foremost. For more information or to donate, go to www.prairiedoc.org or send your donations to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. Thank you for your support.
0: Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Dock has been provided by.
6: Out here, the day starts early and ends late. You don't love this land because it's easy. You love it because it's home. At Avera, we're built for rural healthcare. We're bringing quality, innovation, and advanced technology to your vibrant communities. Care when and where you need it. That's how Avera moves health forward.
0: Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Ophthalmology Limited, Avera Medical Group Brookings, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Monument Health, Dakota Dermatology, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yenton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, South Dakota American College of Physicians, Cool Beans Coffee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, and Swiftel Communications.